Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 92, Spates, The Scientific Revolution. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, Spates went through a rather dark period, losing three managers all within the span of a few years, along with struggling with wartime restrictions and a fire that burnt down a significant portion of the brewery. All of this ultimately resulting in Spates losing their share of the export market and becoming an exclusively local supplier. Today we will see how they tried to recover after this decade or so of tragedy, with some significant developments being made on the technical side of brewing. In 1948, the year after the West Coast boycott, a new boardroom was constructed by the brewery carpenters, where obviously board meetings would take place and all important guests would be entertained. The walls had a nice wood panelling that Hugh Spate didn't want to be ruined, so he instructed that no paintings or other wall hangings be put up. One of the fancy embellishments the room did have was a big clock, where each hour was marked with a medal that Spates had won at international competitions. You might remember that I mentioned in the previous episode that Reg Dawson, Spates's head brewer, had taken Charles Spates's place on the now defunct local board of New Zealand breweries. Well, he had been at the brewery for about 25 years, and in 1948 was retiring to be replaced by John Rind. Rind began his brewing apprenticeship back in 1929 and had worked at pretty much every NZB brewery since then. One of his most recent appointments had been at the Gisborne Brewery, but he only worked there for one day because he was part of the Naval Volunteer Reserve, and the day after he started, World War II broke out, so he was rapidly called into service. Obviously, he survived and returned to New Zealand to work in a brewery in Auckland before coming to Dunedin. Rind got a running start at Spates, with a new beer being launched not long after he joined, Spates Superb Pale Ale. It was a milder beer that had half the hops content of gold medal ale. Rind would also help oversee Spates undergo numerous changes to its processes and new machines added to their repertoire. One of the first things he did was to get rid of the old fermentation process that they were using, called butt fermentation. The butt being a type of equipment used in that style of fermentation and obviously not someone's backside. It's unknown whether it was a coincidence or somehow related, but almost immediately after the butts stopped being used, the quote-unquote yeast troubles began. One of the steps during beer production is clarification, where the solids are removed from the wort to make it clear, which helps in the brewing process and tends to make a higher quality beer. One of those solids, of course, being yeast. Unfortunately for Spates, after buck fermentation stopped, this process didn't seem to be working. The liquid wort would still have yeast all the way through it. This wouldn't have been all that bad had this been caught before brewing was completed. 
However, some of the yeasty brew was kegged and sent to pubs and hotels. Finings, which are substances added to beer to give flavour as well as further clarify it, were rapidly sent to establishments, with instructions to add it to the spates that had recently arrived. However, this failed to solve the problem, and almost all the beer shipped out of spates around this time was sent back by the local pubs as undrinkable. This was another big blow to spates, as their sales were still low from the whole gravity of wart fiasco, and now they dropped even further. Not all hope was lost though. Rind had a theory that the issue had come from a new set of equipment that they had been using, and replaced it with some of the older equipment they had lying around. This seemed to solve the problem, but a year later, the same issue returned. The more likely reason for the yeast troubles was that the switching from butt fermentation to another process had resulted in the yeast being contaminated, as the butts do quite well in protecting the yeast from any particulates in the ear, despite being quite labour intensive. Several other NZB breweries offered to help by providing yeast that they had on hand, but Rind refused thinking that Spates's unique flavour was from the yeast. However, after this problem occurred a few more times, Rind had to concede that they needed new yeast, which they managed to source from Christchurch. The other major change that Rind made was the introduction of a huge machine to automate cask washing. Appropriately known as the Super Goliath, it would automatically move casks along a conveyor and blast hot water into them, while brushes scrubbed the outside by rotating the cask. Previously, all this work had to be done by hand, which, as you can imagine, was a pretty big job. They had whole yards dedicated to this task alone, which is also where the Super Goliath was installed. Naturally, the installation of an automatic machine made 19 staff surplus to requirements, so Rind made them redundant, though at least one of them found a job elsewhere in the brewery. There was one thing that the Super Goliath couldn't do though, removing the little muslin hop bags placed in the casks for dry hopping. To fix this, dry hopping was dropped altogether as a process. At the same time, the casks going forward would be lined with brewer's pitch, a mix of wax and resin which helped the casks last a bit longer. The addition of the Super Goliath marks a bit of a turning point in Spates' attitude towards how it handled staff being made redundant, in this case due to automation. Previously, they would have been offered jobs in either other parts of Spates or at another NZB brewery, but this, as far as I can tell, was the first time a group of people were laid off en masse at Spates, and not given the option to move. It's something that we'll see more of going forward, and it would be interesting to know why this change came about. Since the butt fermentation method was no longer being used, the cellar that this was conducted in was now vacant, and thoughts were being made on what it should be used for now. Spates finally landed on turning it into a bottling hall, where they could bottle their own brew. The consequence of this was that they no longer needed Powleys, who was still bottling Spates exclusively in the South Island on their 99-year contract. 
Interestingly, Powley, around about this time, bought McGavins and leased Strawns from NZB. We aren't sure if these two events are linked, but it is possible that NZB offered Powley a bit of compensation for the loss of their lucrative bottling rights, in the form of the two other NZB Dunedin breweries. Although, Strawns was closed the following year in 1950, and Powley also bought another brewery, Wilson's Dunedin Brewery. The Wilson being that of our old mate, James Wilson, or rather his descendants, as he would have likely been dead at this point. And in fact, the brewery that Powley had just bought was on the same site as the original Well Park Brewery. The acquisition of McGavins did present a bit of a problem though, as RCB Greenslade, current assistant manager of Spates, was on the McGavins board, as well as the board of NZB. This was seen as an untenable position, since McGavins was now seen as a rival brewery, and he would have to resign from one of them to ensure there was no conflict of interest. However, in a weird turn of events, the decision was kind of made for him when NZB bought back a 50% stake in McGavins, meaning it was brought back into the NZB fold and Greenslade was allowed to remain. The loss of Powleys as a bottler did also have one other rather significant consequence. The Moa logo, which was rather synonymous with Spates now, belonged to Powleys. So, when Spates began doing the job themselves, the MOA on the labels was gone forever. It wasn't a full conversion just quite yet though, and Powleys would continue to bottle Spates until 1956. By 1950, a significant development in how beer was transported had been made. Instead of beer being delivered to Powleys in a bunch of casks loaded onto the back of a truck, a huge glass-lined tank was loaded onto a flatbed and filled with beer, which was great because it meant more beer could be transported with less faff. This created a few hurdles though, as it meant changing some of the aspects of how beer was processed. The main one was that beer sitting in casks would go through a natural conditioning process, which is how beer becomes carbonated. That didn't occur when the beer was put into the tanker, so a carbonating and filtering process was added in 1949, taking place on the first floor of the quote-unquote new brewery which was now 10 years old. Added in 1951, also on the carbonating floor, was Spates' first cold store, containing 13 tanks, able to hold 690 hogsheads between them. Another process that happened on this floor was finings preparation. In this case, it was the isinglass, dried swim bladders from fish that were softened with acid and mixed with water to produce a gelatinous liquid. This liquid would be added to the beer after fermentation. But what's interesting, or rather kind of horrifying, is that there would occasionally be spills of acid onto the floor. Because, you know, these things just sometimes happen. Over the years, this gradually dissolved the lime in the concrete floor, which would travel down with the acid into the ceiling of the floor below. There, it would drip and leave a small deposit of lime on the ceiling. And over time, 
create artificial stalactites. Now that the processing of the beer had been ironed out, the thinking was that they could expand the tankers to not just deliver to Powleys, but deliver straight to pubs and hotels. This presented another problem though, as they would need to convince the publicans that this was a good idea that they should adopt. At the moment, pubs were only equipped to hook up casks to their taps, but this new system would mean that they would need to install large tanks in their own cellars, which could be costly, take up a lot of room, and generally, publicans might not be super keen on the whole thing. To this end, the sales and distribution team went through Dunedin, suburb by suburb, convincing owners that they should adopt this new system. Part of the deal was likely that the brewery would front up some of the cost of getting the tanks in, as a separate department was set up in Spates called the Hotel Department, whose job it was to fit hotels with tanks. On the brewery side, a tanker filling station had to be set up to be able to easily fill up the new truck. The first tanker that Spates owned was a Bedford that had a 4,800 litre stainless steel tank on the back. Built in Christchurch, Hugh Spate and John Rind went up to take delivery of it in 1951. Also with them were Noel Davenport from Sales, who was the guy who did most of the convincing of hotels, Bernard O'Connell, secretary for NZB, and the fellow who would be driving it all around Dunedin, Jim Malcolmson. Malcolmson had joined Spates in 1919 as a horse carriage driver, and was later promoted to a motor vehicle driver and eventually foreman driver. The first tanker delivery of beer took place on the 23rd of July 1951 to the Criterion Hotel, with the second hotel to take delivery being the one right next to it on the 28th of August. It wasn't long before demand required another tanker, which was of similar design. And then, a third. The third one was a bit smaller than the other two, only holding 2,700 litres, but the technology within it was a bit more advanced. You see, the tanks being installed into the hotels held about 1,300 litres, which was good in the sense that the 4,800 litre Bedfords could service multiple hotels on a single run. The issue though is that if you're driving around with a half full tank of carbonated beer, it's sloshing around, getting all foamy and becoming flat, kind of like when you shake a bottle of fizzy. There was also likely a pressure issue as well as CO2 filled the tank. The smaller truck, nicknamed the Bubble, didn't have this problem because it had two compartments in its tank, 1,300 litres each. Conveniently, this meant that one compartment could fill an entire hotel tank. With the second compartment still full, they wouldn't be driving around with half of the beer sloshing all over the place and going flat. The trade-off was that it could only service two places at a time, so it was only used for in-town deliveries. The trucks were meant to be painted in the standard NZB colour scheme of two shades of green. However, for some reason, Hugh Spate very much disliked green as a colour, so Spates' tankers were painted tan and cream. Casks weren't fully phased out yet though, 
especially for those places serving spates further afield than Otago. Four of the five hotels in Blenheim served spates from a cask, same in Nelson, but it was becoming harder to get those casks to them. Since the war, shipping via sea was no longer used by spates, as it still wasn't at its pre-war levels yet, making it rather expensive. Roads and rail were now the favoured method. There was a brief time though that they managed to get some casks onto ships on the cheap by replacing the wood used to secure freight with casks of beer. Eventually, Nelson and Marlborough switched over to tanks, but NZB decided that they didn't want to do long-distance tanker runs, presumably for economic reasons such as fuel cost, or maybe they didn't think the beer would last the journey in a tanker. Whatever the case, this meant that Spanx's distribution was effectively limited to the lower South Island, south of Oamaru. Another kick in the balls after a decade of issues. Other changes were happening directly within the brewery as well. A new telephone and intercom system was established to help keep contact within the building running smoothly. Previously, if someone within the brewery wanted to talk to someone else, they had to get a person to run around and try and find them, which was rather difficult when the brewery was now very large with multiple stories and spread across two sides of Rattray Street. The new intercom system would avoid all this, with three microphones being installed, one at the reception desk which would be womaned by Marilyn Dunn for the next 26 years, who was said to have a quote, mellifluous voice, end quote. The second was in the brewer's office, and the last was in the office of the brewery manager, currently Hugh Spate. Hugh had become quite the dominant figure within the brewery, and apparently, quote, those who worked under him can still hear echoes of his commanding voice booming from the speakers. Calling X, X8O please, end quote. 8O was Hugh's personal phone extension, and so if anyone was called on to give 8O a ring, they found a phone real quick. In 1951, after a long time languishing, progress was finally made on the malt house across the street that had burnt down in the Great Fire. One of the kilns that had been damaged in the fire was restored to its former glory, which increased the malting capacity of Spates. Additionally, work had begun to dismantle what remained of the building, to get it ready for whatever they wanted to put there in future. It was also around this time that the old slogan, purity, body and strength, was brought back, though it was now slightly modified to purity, body and flavour, with strength being noticeably absent. This revived slogan also debuted with a new advertisement campaign of three anthropomorphised barrels where the barrel itself was the head with a face and they had a human body underneath. Each barrel represented one of the words purity, body and flavour and were dressed in a theme to reflect that. Purity had a hat and pipe like Sherlock Holmes. Body had a stripy shirt and ripped physique like a bodybuilder, and flavour a hat and apron like a chef. 
One of these ads showed the barrels standing on top of each other with one looking through a hole in the fence, the others asking, quote, what's the score, end quote. So it was meant to be playful and a bit of fun. Noel Davenport was the one who came up with them, but they were adopted by NZB as a whole not long after, and used in a number of ads throughout the years. In 1952, head brewer Rind was sent overseas to attend a course at the School of Fermentation in Copenhagen, and upon his return, it was decided that Spates should produce a lager, something that had never been done in the South Island. Despite the idea being a result of Rind's trip, he actually left Spates the following year to take up a position as technical manager at the NZB head office. His replacement was Doug Cox, who had recently returned to Dunedin after being sent to help set up the Whanganui Brewery, after it had been acquired by NZB a few years earlier. Much like many of the other workers in Spates, and indeed pretty much every industry in New Zealand, Cox's brewing apprenticeship in his hometown of Christchurch had a brief interval when he was called up for military service. He attained the rank of squadron leader in the Royal New Zealand Air Force and had a rather illustrious career in the Pacific Theatre, personally being mentioned in dispatches for his heroism and earning the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal for his courage. After the war, he got some government help to get a diploma of brewing at Birmingham University and visited a number of breweries in the UK and Scandinavia to further his studies. Upon his return in 1948, he went back to NZB and they gave him a job at Spates, where he also met his wife through Rind. So, it was Cox's job to develop this new lager. But it wasn't as simple as just changing some of the ingredients around. It would require £100,000 worth of investment, or about $6.5 million today. A Danish brewer by the name of Tor Toft came to the other side of the planet to help with the endeavour, and a new mash cooker was purchased from Germany. This meant the brewers could heat the mash in stages, allowing different enzymes in the malt to work more efficiently compared to the single-strike brewing they had been doing up until this point. Along with this, two new paraflows were installed to cool the wort. These are slightly more advanced devices, but basically worked on the same principle that we talked about a few episodes ago with the fish gills. The hot wort would be run through one pipe and the cold water in the one right next to it in the opposite direction, so that the heat could transfer to the water, cooling the wort and getting the water hot for the next brew. Previously, they had just been dumping the wort over the pipes, so it was a bit more contained now. The old coolers were also taken out and replaced with a fridge room for hops. With all this new equipment, you couldn't forget about the hogshead tanks. 20 100 hogshead tanks were also added with three cold stores, the tanks inside these stores being built in-house. There were also a few process changes done as well, with how the lager was fermented, as it was done slightly differently to the regular ales. The main thing is that a lot of time and money went into trying to make this lager, since it required a different way of brewing. 
It took a couple of years to get this all together, and at the end of it, Spates had a few trial lagers, but nothing they were ready to mass produce just yet. However, things were helped along a little bit by the closing of two breweries in Invercargill. The locals were pretty pissed off at this, because NZB had bought them and immediately shut them down. But it was good for Spates, who saw an opportunity to market a local beer for Southlanders. Combining some of their trial lagers with their ale, Spates created Southland Bitter, to cater to those thirsty Southlanders who felt cheated by the closure of local breweries. I also wonder whether the name was perhaps inspired by the mood in Invercargill as well as a descriptor of the flavour. The lager experiment also included trials on the bottling of beer, such as the switching of the filtering medium to diatomaceous earth, which is basically just ground up fossils. Carbonation also went through a change and became simpler, where gas was injected through a small nozzle into the beer as it went through a pipe. After a bit more experimentation, the lager was officially labelled as a pilsner, and sale began in September 1955. The other interesting part of this was that the lager was the first Spates beer not to be produced in Dunedin at the main site. Instead, it was brewed in Auckland, something that will be occurring more as our story continues. While all this was going on, some progress had been made on the old malt house, which was still a burnt ruin. The charred timber had now been removed, and the roofing of the cellars under the building turned into a car park, since that was starting to be a thing that was needed, with cars becoming more and more common. Other changes were happening too, with the cask washing station on the roof of the Spates Alehouse building being removed, since the need for casks was diminishing in favour of tankers, as well as the Super Goliath doing most of the work. This kinda had the add-on effect that the Coopers were being put out of business as well, as the first metal casks were introduced in June 1954, which didn't need repairs like wooden casks, and couldn't be made by Coopers since it was an entirely different skill set. As an aside, also in 1954, Spates' longest-serving member, dispatch manager Jim DeClifford, retired after 60 years. I was actually contacted by Jim's direct descendant in regards to the main source I used when researching these episodes, so that was really exciting. In 1958, after about a decade of ownership, Powleys sold McGavins back to NZB after the government announced what is called the Black Budget. The government, of course, announces a budget where it details what areas it will spend those hard-earned tax dollars on, as well as any changes to those taxes. In the budget of 1958, Prime Minister Stuart Nash and Finance Minister Arnold Nordmeyer told the country that there would be an increase in taxes on a few different items, such as tobacco, petrol, and most importantly for our story, beer. This was all due to the price of butter taking a nosedive in Britain, which was one of New Zealand's largest exports and New Zealand's largest export market at the time. 
the increased tax seems to have given Powleys a spook, and they decided to get out of the brewing game by selling back their half, with McGavin soon after ceasing brewing entirely, but continued malting and bottling. Although this still didn't put RCB Greenslade in the tenuous position he had been previously, he decided to resign as assistant manager of Spates, and join Powleys on their board. He was succeeded as assistant manager by Spates's secretary, George Dunn. The stopping of brewing at McGavin's meant that their brands would now cease to be, but Spates took up the brewing of one to keep it going. O.M. Stout. The O.M. standing for Oat Malt, as it was made with oats. Though the labels show it as being Old Matured Stout. During this time, there were a few more changes to equipment at Spates, with some new vessels, a mash mixer, and a 100 hogshead kettle imported from Germany. Interestingly, this kettle was half the size of the older ones, but it actually produced the same amount of beer, since each brew was now being made at double strength, and would be diluted with water. An even bigger innovation was about to be implemented though, one that didn't just impact New Zealand brewing, but the entire world. In 1958, Spates adopted a method called continuous fermentation, which they would use for the next 30 years. CF, as it was commonly known, was developed by Morton Coots, a member of the founding family of Dominion Breweries. The method was developed in conjunction with NZB, and both companies gained the patent once it was fully formed. Astute Kiwi beer connoisseurs may know Dominion Breweries by their more well-known anagram, D. B. NZB Palmerston North was the first brewery in the world to use this method to make beer, with a brewer from Spates assisting. Over the next couple of years, all NZB breweries switched to CF, installing any extra necessary equipment. Unfortunately, during the installation of Spates's trial run of CF, an electrician died from electrocution. An especially sad story since he was a 20-year-old refugee from Hungary, having a rather arduous journey from his home in Budapest after the Soviet army crushed a revolt there two years earlier. Later on in 1958, NZB and Dominion Breweries jointly acquired Canterbury Malting Company. No points for guessing what these guys sold. It was a significant acquisition, because NZB decided that all malt should be bought from them, meaning the breweries under their banner didn't need to do their own malting. As such, malting at both McGavin's and Spates ceased, with associated fallout of the malt house workers losing their jobs or being reassigned elsewhere. This also meant that McGavin's entire purpose was now pretty much just to bottle Spates, who only had so much capacity to do it on site, and of course Powleys had now ceased to bottle for them as of two years ago. A year after, the final independent brewery in Southland, Gore Brewery, was taken over by NZB and subsequently shut down. Five other breweries had also closed down in the last few years, 
meaning that Spates was the only brewery south of Oamaru. Combine this with increased population in the area and the economy recovering after the war, it meant that there were more people with more money to spend and less beer options to spend it on. Bad for consumers, fucking great for spates, as over the last five years they had seen their sales increase to more than double of what they were about a decade ago. Over this time, Spates had been increasing their fleet of vehicles, now having about 30, including tankers, trucks and vans, as well as company cars for the higher-ups. This would be accompanied by a truck and tanker maintenance division, opening in 1961. There was also even more expansion going on, with two more cold stores being added, bringing the total to six. And the final CF units were installed, which had two circular fermenters and a yeast separator. One of the men tasked with installing the plant was Big Bert Schoenweil, who I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Big Bert joined NZB as a member of the head office laboratory, which former head brewer of spades John Rind had set up. Bert was a bit of an interesting chap, as he represented the new cohort of brewers that were now entering the industry. Because instead of becoming a brewer through an apprenticeship, like most people had done in the past, Bert was university educated, having been trained as a chemical analyst, and had in fact helped to develop the standard lab processes used across all NZB breweries. Bart was only meant to be at Spates for about six months to install the CF equipment and help implement the lab processes he had developed, but he actually ended up staying there for a few years, so he must have thought it was alright. Two years after it had been developed, in April 1960, continuous fermentation became the main method of brewing at Spates. The details of how this process works aren't super important, but the main thing to take away is that CF required less labour to perform, and resulted in a more consistent product. Funnily enough, the first CF foreman was a guy called Big Jim Preston, so named to distinguish him from his nephew, Little Jim Preston, who also worked at the brewery. In the first few months, the CF room was plastered, painted, and tiled, all while it was in operation. The room was interior decorated by Katrina Spate, Hugh Spate's wife. She was quite meticulous about it, apparently painting one wall four times before deeming it satisfactory. A fern and flax garden was also added to the front of the building, with a huge map of New Zealand which had inlaid lights to show where NZB had branches. That is to say, where all the breweries were. The CF room would later become the real centrepiece of the Spates Brewery. Not because of what was actually happening in there, but for its design. It gained a large mural made of 2,500 pieces of perspex, apparently the first of its kind in the world. The mural depicted a stylized flowchart of the beer-making process, flanked by images such as people cutting sugarcane and the three barrel people of purity, body, and flavor doing various tasks. 
It also had a cool lighting system that lit the mural from the back, lighting up the individual parts of the beer making chart in order before lighting up the whole mural at once. The mural was so good and technically impressive that it won the Best of All award and the first prize in the sheet processing and fabricating section of the annual New Zealand Institute of Plastics competition. Usually, the mural was only all lit up for when guests were given a tour of the brewery, which back then wasn't very often, as there wasn't a dedicated touring process. Instead, the job of showing people around usually fell to either Big Bert or Ernie Taylor, one of the lab staff who, quote, had a gift of the gab, end quote. Ordinarily, this sort of thing would have been done by the marketing team. But since Spates basically had a monopoly on draft beer south of Wamaru, the marketing team wasn't as high priority as it once was. That is to say, they didn't really have one. Going back to Big Jim, he was also the head of the yeast room guys, who were in charge of, well, the yeast that was used to ferment the beer. As well as being an ingredient of beer, yeast is actually a byproduct too, since it's a living organism that multiplies during the fermentation process. Some of it would obviously be reused for the next brew, but there was a lot of excess that wasn't really needed. So instead, that was sold off to the Sanitarium Health Food Company, who used it to make another iconic Kiwi food, Marmite. Other byproducts of brewing include the used grain, which was sold to farmers for stock feed, and now that CF was used, they could more easily capture the carbon dioxide coming from the fermentation, as it was done in enclosed tanks rather than in open guiles. This CO2 was then used to carbonate the beer later in the process. At this time is also when NZB introduced a national brand of beer, which they had been planning a couple of years earlier. As we know, breweries mostly sold locally, with the majority of Spates' beer selling to the Lower South Island. However, NZB wanted some brands that could be purchased regardless of where you were in the country. And as such, this would require the use of all their breweries in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Dunedin to ensure all regions could be serviced. There was a slight problem, though, due to Spates's private water supply from the aquifer beneath it. We've discussed it before, but the water in this aquifer had a particular mineral composition, making what's called a hard water, which is part of what gives Spates its particular flavour. So, to keep the uniformity of the new products across the country, they would use tap water instead just like they had done back in James Spates' day. The new beers would be batch-fermented, rather than using CF, to keep them all separate from the other beers Spates made. With all the prep done, in August 1960, the four new national beers launched under the Lucky brand. These were Lucky Stout, double the strength of standard beer and put in 350ml bottles, Lucky Lager, similar to today's Stein Lager, Lucky Bitter, which was quote, dark and hoppy, end quote, 
and Lucky Draft was, quote, lighter and milder, end quote. Apparently, all of these beers were actually really bloody good. And it may have been a resounding success had NZB not made a colossal error. Along with the launch of the Lucky brand, NZB pulled from the shelves all other established brands under its name, including Spates. Why they thought this was a good idea, and whether there was a plan to eventually bring them back, I couldn't find out. But the fury from customers was swift. This anger must have been strongly felt, as it only took two months before NZB backpedaled on the decision, with Lucky disappearing from the pubs not long after. Interestingly, at this time, Spates was only producing what we know today as Gold Medal Ale, the flagship beer that most people are talking about when they say, get me a Spates, and they give no additional context. We don't know why Spates wasn't brewing any other beers, but we do know that O.M. Stout came back soon after the Lucky Fiasco, as well as introducing two new beers, Four Star Lager and Two Star Sparkling both known under the overall heading as Brew 85, on account that they were launched 85 years after the founding of Spates. In the early 60s, there was only one travelling salesman, but when he died suddenly, two more were appointed. Dennis Jones, who looked after the draft beer customers, so that's like the hotels and pubs and stuff, and Bill Lowther, who looked after the bottled beer sales, so that's like your liquor lands and stuff. Jones would later become the transport supervisor, as he was a trained mechanic, while Lowther was a salesman through and through, having sold vacuum cleaners prior to Spates, and was rather popular on the road with his customers. He would often say upon leaving, quote, I must dart away, end quote, which gave him his nickname, Dart Away. These two took over as tour guides of the brewery, which was interesting since Lowther didn't really know all that much about how the beer was made, beer that, you know, he sold. However, he managed to bullshit his way through it with his charm and wit. Or rather, He did what I used to do when I was a tour guide. If you're asked a question you don't know the answer to, just uh, make it up and the person probably won't second guess you. In one particular case, Lowther was asked about a device that was used to shake liquids in the laboratory. Its real use was probably to separate sediment or something like that, but after thinking for a moment, because he didn't actually know the answer, he told the guest that it was a, quote, transport simulator, end quote, that was used to test how well beer would do when travelling over bumpy roads. With the doubling of the sales staff, naturally, beer sales continued to rise for spates, and with it came an increased consumption of water. Interestingly, most of the water used in brewing actually didn't end up in the beer. The majority was used to run the refrigerating systems and to temperature control the CF. This meant that at one point, Spates was the second largest consumer of water in Dunedin, only being beaten by the entire suburb 
of St Kilda. Thankfully though, some cooling towers were installed that could be used to more easily cool the water and recycle it, reducing their water needs. Other small things going on were that in 1962 a new beer was launched, this time called Hokonui Draft. It was similar to Brew 85 and was produced by the Matoda Licensing Trust, hence the name Hokonui. The tankers also got a bit of a facelift around this time to make them look a bit more like the bubble and less industrial. Some beer was also being sent in casks too, since some of the pubs couldn't really justify a large 1,300 litre tank. Plus, there was a small market for use of kegs at picnics and parties. Overall, the early to mid-60s were fairly quiet for spates, with sales steadily increasing and the odd brewery change going on here and there. That is, until 1967, which is the year that the six o'clock swill ended by national referendum. Yeah, you forgot that that was still going, didn't you? To refresh your memory, the swill was the colloquial name for the legally enforced six o'clock closing of pubs, something implemented 50 years earlier in 1917 as a temporary wartime measure to keep men productive and not drunk. So now that pubs could stay open pretty much all the way into the night, beer sales rose even further. This led to the decision by Spates to establish a much larger bottling plant on the site of the old burnt malt houses, something that Hugh Spate had been advocating to happen for a few years now. In March 1968, the plans were unveiled of what the new plant would look like, and the next month, the machines rolled in to tear the buildings down to make way for the new ones. Just as a quick aside to finish this episode, The mention of the swill may just have made you remember that we haven't talked about the Prohibitionists for basically the last two episodes. The main reason for that is that after the 1920s, they were no longer a big threat. Appetite for national or even local prohibition had taken a nosedive during that decade. Most of the dry electorates would go wet by the 1940s. The referendums to vote for prohibition still occurred with every election, but there were less and less people voting for it. In 1931, the referendum was cancelled to save costs from the Depression, and by 1935, less than 30% of voters ticked the box. From that point on, one-third was the peak of voter support for prohibition, until the referendums were abolished entirely in 1989. Despite all that work and effort over a century, prohibitionists had ultimately lost the fight. The public had moved on and decided that alcohol was okay and perhaps even part of Kiwi culture. That hasn't stopped some organisations to keep trying to advocate for prohibition even to this day. But we'll talk more about that when we discuss the Prohibition era of Aotearoa in its own episode. Next time, it is the penultimate episode, where we will cover the construction of the new bottling plant and how it worked. 
We will also talk about the centennial celebrations of the founding of Spates and the rivalry between New Zealand breweries and Dominion breweries will start to heat up. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>